to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. Credit reporting giant Equifax was recently hit by hackers who gained access to the data of 143 million consumers. We've discussed data breaches on the podcast before, but this may be the first time that lawsuits by investors gain traction in the wake of a breach. We'll be joined later in the show by senior securities reporter Carmen Germain to walk us through what Equifax may be facing. And later on, we'll end the show by talking about some alleged fake news involving a pair of comedians who are facing legal trouble after their appearance on a Wisconsin morning show. I'm here with my co-host, Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. And we have a special guest co-host this week, Jody Godoy. Well, hello, hello. <laughs> I am so glad you did that good. right up top. Yeah, that was solid. His get- Someone's got to, you know, fill in the bill-shaped hole here. Well, you know, Alex gave Bill a lot of guff for uh, imitating him when Alex is out for a week. It wasn't, again, I don't. It wasn't. A, it wasn't an issue that he did. He just did it so poorly. Like, I mean, if you want me to do so, like, check this out. This, hello, hello. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, so is good. Bill in the room? Well, you know, <laughs> I, I try and do what I can. I got my Fordham shirt on. I got the whole thing going on. Yeah, that's that's the bill. That's the bill. By the what? way, mine wasn't an impression. It was just fair use. I was just. You know, <laughs> oh, there you go. Now we're perfect, off and running. Perfect. Well, since Bill isn't here today, I'm taking point on one cool. of the things we want to talk about right up top in the show. And what I'm bringing to the table today is about the first of its kind self-driving car bill that passed in the House. I think this is fun and interesting because. Self-driving cars, we talk about all the time. It's like the wave of the future. So The future is now. Yeah, so how they're going to be regulated is pretty important. Hold on, hold the phone here. You're talking about cars with no I drivers? Am. Cars with no drivers. Can you believe it? All right, let's, tell, let's talk about this bill. What, what, <laughs> what, what goes on so here? So the bill is about governing how these cars are manufactured and tested, how they're deployed. So just all the regulations you would imagine need to be sorted out there. And our senior transportation reporter, Linda Chim, had an article that broke down all the key things. Uh, I would like to start by saying that the acronym for the bill is one of those cute ones that they like twist into a pretzel. So the acronym's funny. It's called the Self-Drive Act. Okay. Nice. So. What, is it, what does, does it stand does it, for? Does it start, whereas people would rather eat cheeseburgers <laughs> and do their nails in the I, car? <laughs> I intentionally did not bring into the the booth today the uh, what it spells out because it is so long and ridiculous. Yeah. It's like a twisted pretzel. Frankly, I'd rather not but encourage self-drive. them. Self-drive. 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 Cool. Got it. Catchy. Okay. So is the, is the idea here to like give incentive to like make to, for like the innovation of self-driving technology? Totally. That's 100% what it's all about. And a couple things in the bill make it clear that they're just trying to open up the road for this innovation. Um, the first thing is that automakers would get to uh, obtain exemptions to deploying 25,000 vehicles without meeting existing safety standards. So they would get these exemptions so that they could test these out. So they can test how many accidents there's going to be, how many people are going to have hard attacks when they see a self-driving car drive down the street, (laughs) Okay, how many dogs are going to be driving cars. All right. Doomsday (laughs) predictions there. (laughs) But but yeah, the idea is... It's a brave new world. It's new technology. They need Mm -hmm. to be tested. So it would be 25,000 vehicles per automaker for the first year, and then the cap on these exemptions would climb to 100,000 vehicles for each automaker each year over a three-year period. Okay. So a lot of self-driving cars where they could gather the data and, and, and work on them. Whenever something new comes into the market, though, I know that there's a lot of like push and pull about who actually like has a responsibility, whether it's the you know the federal government or the states, is that cleared up here? In the, or is it, does this bill aim to clear that water? Yeah, you, you're exactly right. There's always this with regulatory stuff, there's always this push and pull between who takes charge. And this one squarely says it's the federal government. Mm-hmm. So states wouldn't be allowed to regulate design or construction of these cars in any way that differs from the federal regulations. 
Um, they would still be able to regulate some stuff like licensing and training of drivers and restricting dealers and how they're selling them. But the core things about design and construction would all be federal. And that's pretty important because some have made the argument that this innovation is being stifled because there's a patchwork of laws out there in right. the states right now. So this just gives a lot of clarity to the people pushing forward with this, this technology. So you mentioned this bill gives clarity as to who's actually regulating these cars. Does it give any clarity as to what the cars need to include or any sort of safeguards? You know, this car is just going to be driving people around. So yeah, I mean, about that. there's a lot of issues that come up with this kind of technology. And it's actually a little ironic that I brought this up on a show where later we're going to be talking about a big uh, hacking story. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, because there's hacking concerns with these cars, too. So some experts say that these cars could be hacked and then a malicious command could basically take over the car and start driving So kind of like Christine, basically. It'd be like the new It, but yeah. it'd be like a new it would Christine. Be, it would be that. So it's the high-tech St- version Stephen of that. Stephen King is like trending now. It's a very timely <laughs> reference from you, Christine. So the bill, um, we'll see if there are course, any self-driving 1958 Plymouth Furies. Uh, yeah, I'm, that's that's what we all hope for. Okay, yeah. It's a dream. Sorry. Uh, go ahead. <laughs> so, so the bill tries to address some of the sort of privacy and cybersecurity angles here, mm-hmm. but the way it does it is largely leaving it up to automakers to develop a plan to deal with it, and the plan makes them quote reasonably foreseeable vulnerabilities is what they have to address. Okay. So leaves it a little loosey goosey, and that. Has, uh, there's differing opinions about whether that's good or bad. I mean, on the bad side is that some say it's essentially a punt, that there's no yeah. real guidelines here, and how do you comply with this? That's a, a standard that clearly would have to be sorted well, out. Well, nothing bad ever came of letting an industry regulate itself. <laughs> <laughs> that, this podcast never talks about those problems. <laughs> but on the pro side, there are some people in the privacy and cyber bar that say that when Congress codifies laws that try to set very specific compliance, the technology outstrips it so quickly that it just becomes pointless. And this approach at least lets the automakers deal with the threat as it evolves. So you might actually get better outcomes if they can deal with just an overarching standard instead of specific criteria they have to meet. You said that it passed the House. Of course, we know then it has to go to the Senate. Is there any... I know the Senate's well, pretty, pretty busy with some other stuff. but Well, so, yeah, it passed the House, and really quickly, it passed on a voice vote. This oh, okay. was, like, fast-tracked yeah. through the House. Uh, it's not clear it's going to be that great a ride in the Senate. Mm-hmm. The Senate, as we know right now, we talked last week about immigration issues they're facing. They still have the Congress overall, so has to deal with the budget and the debt limit and all these other things. So we may have a little stalling pattern here. But the fact that it went so quickly through the House does show there's enthusiasm for this bill and for getting some regulations going on the federal level in this. All right. Well, that's probably a good uh, good enough place to hit the brakes. Thanks for, uh, thanks for yeah. bringing that to us, Amber. And I'm, I'm going to turn it right back to you, Alex, because you've brought the next piece of news we're going to talk about. Yeah. Uh, and before we started, I know that you, um, with, you know, you're here and Jody's here and neither of you guys are big um, football fans uh, or, or sports fans, but this is um, sort of... Under I know the Im- what goalposts are. <laughs> this is under the umbrella of, you know, a sports story, but uh, it's actually, you know, a story about a labor dispute yes, when you get so right down to I it. I will have okay. more cogent comments on that basis, right. for sure. So basically, the NFL, uh, the National Football League, has found itself sort of in another heated legal battle with one of its marquee stars. It's um, Dallas Cowboys running back Ezekiel Elliott, and he... And the NFL Players Union are currently in the midst of a legal fight to overturn Elliott's six-game suspension for domestic violence allegations. Sounds like that one could have a lot of moving parts, be kind of a sticky situation. So could you just sort of lay out 
the particulars of what happened? Definitely. And people who listen to the show know that we we deal in legal issues here. And like, I don't want to come off as glib or looking past the seriousness of domestic violence allegations. Um, so if we're if we get, you know, bogged down talking about labor stuff, I don't want to appear sort of tone deaf to stuff like that. I mean, it's very important. But, you know, as we look at it through the legal lens, I think that'll be sure. useful here. So in July 2016, this is a couple months before his rookie year, Elliot was accused of domestic violence by uh, a female acquaintance of his in Chicago. And that was investigated by police and prosecutors in Ohio. And those authorities ultimately decided that there was not enough evidence to press charges. There were sort of inconsistent and conflicting information by Elliot and the accuser and the various witnesses. And so they decided to, to drop it. Um, but where this gets a little tricky is that even though you know, prosecutors declined not to pursue the case, the NFL launched its own investigation about whether Elliot had violated its personal conduct policy. And that is sort of operating independent from the legal world. And that investigation was long, lasted about 13 months. And they ultimately decided that there was enough evidence to suggest that even though charges weren't brought, something pretty serious happened. And they suspended him for six games of the 16-game NFL season. And that kind of makes sense from the standpoint of the NFL that they have had a lot of high-profile things that they were accused of not taking seriously enough. Right. Yeah. They've they've struggled with how to handle discipline for domestic violence. And domestic violence is a thing that the legal system itself has struggled with, you know, just because sure. just because charges aren't brought doesn't mean that nothing happened. And, you know, the NFL has sort of now fashioned be, be, because it was it took so much heat for being like too light on people that had committed domestic violence. It it has sort of fancied itself as like the, the moral arbiter of domestic violence. And now it's sort of facing some criticism that it's swung too far the other way. Right. So this decision was made by uh, who Who made the decision that he had uh, violated this policy? Well, the league made it. The commissioner's office, Commissioner Roger okay. Goodell, made it initially. And then the collective bargaining agreement that the players signed allows for an appeal. But that is an appeal that is sort of pro forma only because that is heard by an arbitrator that's appointed by the league. And in this case, was a league official. So you can see so how guys, it's... Guys, we're now in my like labor wheelhouse where... This is what people complain about with arbitration. Mm -hmm. We've talked on the pod before about sort of these uh, mandatory arbitration clauses that come up a lot. There's right. a lot of litigation around those. And this is the kind of stuff they're talking about, that arbitration, the appeals process, and some of this can feel weighed toward the company or in this instance, the NFL. Yeah. And so, as you can imagine, there's a legal fight now that's brewing. Um, after that, six-game suspension was upheld by the you know, pro forma appeal. The Players Union immediately filed a suit in Texas federal court looking to strike down the suspension, and they've had a lot of success so far. They asked the court for a temporary restraining order that would block the suspension from going into effect, and the Texas judge who was hearing the case actually went a step further, went past the TRO, and issued a preliminary injunction. And Ooh, he, yeah. said, Threw down. he said, um, this is a quote, a, a cloud of fundamental unfairness followed Elliot throughout the process. Wow, those are pretty strong words at that stage in the case. Yeah, and as we know, to get an injunction, part of the criteria is likelihood of success on the merits. Right. And in the opinion of this judge, anyway, it would seem to indicate that he thinks it might go pretty well for Elliot. And the allegations of unfairness are pretty thorny, and we maybe don't even have time to really get into them. But there was a lot of evidence that was sort of inconvenient to the narrative that something had happened that the league is alleged to have looked past. And the suit basically says it was cherry-picking evidence 
that made it look like something bad had happened and ignoring more questionable evidence. Even one of the NFL's own investigators at one point said that she found the accuser not credible. That didn't make it into the final report. But a suspension was levied nonetheless. Yeah. Um, so where are we right now with this? I assume that they've appealed this. Uh, yeah. Well, in response, the league filed an appeal to the Fifth Circuit to get the preliminary injunction thrown out. Uh, and that's where we are now. You know, this is not the first time, uh, as you've referenced already, this is not the first time that the NFL's disciplinary you know, policies have come under scrutiny. Everyone remembers Deflategate uh, sure. with Tom Brady. Mm-hmm. And even though that dealt with something that was a little more, you know, superfluous, not as, n- nothing as serious as right. a, a domestic violence allegation, it's the same kind of issue. You know, it, it deals with, you know, the ability of an employer basically to mete out justice in a system that runs, you know, outside, you know, the legal apparatus. So we're going to have to see if this one plays out differently than how Deflategate went. Yeah. And I would recommend everybody read Zach Zagger's story, our senior sports reporter. He said, you know, Tom Brady eventually lost at the Second Circuit, but he suggested there are factors that that signal that it might go differently for Elliot this time. We are in a different circuit. Tom Brady's case played out. home field. Yeah. I mean, it, <laughs> it is literally in Texas where the Cowboys play. So if you if you're the kind of person who gives credence to stuff like that, uh, that matters. And also, beyond the change in venue, this broader question of courts have generally given a lot of deference to arbitration decisions. Sure. But even when they do that, judges have said, like, well, there is there is a line somewhere. And eventually there's going to like there's going to be a line in the sand drawn about, you know, what is an arbitrator allowed to do and not allowed to do? And uh, we'll have to stay tuned to see if the line is um, broached in this case. Great. Thanks for bringing that, Alex. Sure. Legal action by investors in the wake of high-profile data breaches has yielded mixed results in recent years, but the tide could be turning following last week's news of a hack against consumer credit reporting agency Equifax. A unique confluence of factors could push the company into hot water if investor litigation picks up steam. Here to discuss the issue with us is senior securities reporter Carmen Germain. Welcome, Carmen. Hi, thanks for having me. So let's just set the scene for everybody a little bit. Can you just tell us what happened with this Equifax breach and how the company's responded so far? Sure. So Equifax disclosed on last Thursday, September 7th, that they had discovered a breach. They are still sort of investigating, but so far it appears that uh, that personal. we've all been breached, that yeah. everybody's data has been... <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I think even it's... in this room, we talked about a few of us went to like a website to check to see if we'd been breached. Yeah, I was so. in the clear. Yeah. I haven't actually done it yet. Um, I probably should. I've been breached, yeah. But I'm sorry, you were explaining what, what yeah. happened to the... <laughs> yeah, so uh, 148 million people have Whew. had their records compromised, uh, which is basically like half, half the, the population yeah. of the... My, my, of my the quick US. math there of the, yeah. of the country, yeah. Um, and the data that is compromised or breached includes things like social security numbers, addresses, birth dates. I think it, for some consumers, it can be credit card information, too. So, so nothing important. Yeah. Yeah. You don't need that kind of stuff. And as we've seen in the past, things like this are often followed by a wave of litigation. Um, but I want to be clear about the type of litigation we're talking about. There are already consumer class actions pending, you know, taking issue with their own data being leaked. But we have our securities reporter with us because we're talking specifically about legal action brought by investors. Um, So, Carmen, I thought it would be helpful for you to tell us, you know, 
what are some of the legal tools that investors might use against Equifax? And why have those cases not always borne fruit in the past? Sure. So once a data breach happens, if you're an investor, there are kind of two different kind of suits that you can bring. And one is an investor class action where you're alleging securities fraud. Like you're saying, the company knew that its cybersecurity wasn't that good and they just concealed that or they said it was amazing. Um, (laughs) And then the other is a derivative lawsuit where you're saying the board of directors breached their fiduciary duty to the company and maybe didn't make the cybersecurity as good as they knew it needed to be, maybe were actively harming the company. And um, and you wrote a story basically saying that those those cases have yielded pretty mixed results in the wake of breaches of other companies. Why are they why are these cases difficult to make? Well, so in terms of the class actions, you basically need a stock price drop mm-hmm. in order to bring them because you need to get damages of some kind. And in the past, companies that disclosed data breaches just haven't really seen a stock price impact. Everyone's just like, yeah, you got a data breach, I got a data breach, we've all got data breaches. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's basically the, the theory. The market does not react. Yeah. Um, so there, there's no real incentive for a plaintiff's lawyer to bring that kind of case. Uh, and then in the derivative suit case, we have seen a lot of these cases. There's been one in Target, uh, one against Home Depot, Wendy's. There's one against Yahoo. But they are really, really difficult to bring because you really have to show that the directors were like actively harming the company or were being intentional about their negligence. Some kind of smoking or, gun thing, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah they were in much. there planting viruses and yeah. <laughs> opening up cyber doors for the criminals to come in. Yeah. So how is the Equifax data breach any different? Well, so for one thing, Equifax had a pretty major stock drop. I think their stock dropped about 14% between when it was disclosed and when the market opened. It was 14% lower. That's and pretty huge. I was, yeah. I was wondering why that was, because like you said, that's not common. I don't know if it's just to do with... Like the just the size alone? The scope I, of it. And like, I guess it's different than, you know... Like if you, if you use your card at Wendy's and, you know, it's breached, like, okay, but you still are purchasing a burger from Wendy's. Like part of like, they're like the, the whole, like you give like sensitive information to Equifax with like an implied sensitive like covenant. Burger yeah. information. Yes. Yeah. This yeah. is basically the core of Equifax's business is it takes this information from you. Like if it can't keep it secure. Right. Then... Aren't they usually the ones I call when I'm in another data breach to freeze my credit file? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Anyway, so you were saying there's there, there's another sort of special factor at play here. Yeah. So the there's a stock drop and then there's some other factors like they apparently knew about this vulnerability back in March. The hack was in May. They found out about the hack in July took till September to disclose it. So there's some potential allegations there as well. That might not be an actual smoking gun, but we're getting much closer. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, And then the interesting thing in the Equifax case is that there are these trades that were made by senior executives like two days after the breach was discovered. Hmm. Trades, you say? Yeah. (laughs) Stock Uh, trades? Yes. Did they make some money off those stock trades? Uh, yeah, they. I actually don't know how much they made, but they sold two million dollars worth of stock altogether. Wow, that's a chunk. Yeah. Okay, so I mean, how does I mean I can kind of connect the dots, but spell it out. For, I mean, how does that sort of smooth a path towards possible litigation for investors? Well, so a lot of people are suggesting this was insider trading mm-hmm. um, because I. So one of the guys who was trading was actually the CFO, and there were two other executives. So. 
some lawmakers have been calling on the FTC and the SEC and the DOJ to investigate. People are saying, like, how could this not be insider trading? The interesting thing is that it's actually likely not insider trading just because it would be so dumb for these guys to have insider yeah. traded. They have to disclose. In the two days between they dis- when they discovered the breach and when they yeah. announced it to the rest of the world. Yeah, and they have to disclose this, any kind of trade. So, like, these trades were disclosed in SEC filings on August 2nd. Mm-hmm. Does it um, play into the shareholder lawsuits in any way, even if it's not insider trading? Yes, it, it could. Like, we, we don't know until we see what's filed, but it could definitely play into a derivative suit because you could potentially say, well, so the Equifax is saying that the CFO didn't know, and mm-hmm. that's why it's not insider trading. But then the question is, why didn't he know? Mm-hmm. This right. was like three days after you found out about this breach. It's obviously going to be financially material to your company. Why wasn't he told at that point? So you can bring claims that maybe the company's internal controls weren't particularly robust or their systems weren't being followed like they were written down. And the story that you wrote for us, of course, made clear that investor litigation isn't the only thing that Equifax might have to worry about. And you hinted at it already, said they may, they may be getting a call from the SEC. Can you tell us more about what, what kind of um, you know action they might be facing on that front? Yeah, so the SEC will probably be investigating these trades just to make sure that, like Equifax said, these guys didn't know. Uh, but the SEC will also be investigating Equifax's disclosures and kind of in the same way that the investors are and seeing if Equifax was you know, saying its cybersecurity was great when really it wasn't, seeing if Equifax took too long to disclose the breach, uh, if it was misleading investors. The SEC has talked a lot about bringing a case in this area, but it actually hasn't yet. So oh, wow. people will really be watching so to could, see if it does. Could, could break some new ground here. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. So we've talked a lot about the abstract, you know, what investors could bring and what the SEC might do. Has anything actually happened so far? Yeah, so there is at least one security suit that I know of that was filed in the Northern District of Georgia. Uh, the firm that filed it was Levi and Krasinski. It's a, a securities class action lawsuit. Um, it's alleging that Equifax's disclosures were false or misleading, that the company failed to maintain adequate protection and adequate cybersecurity systems and just didn't tell investors or told investors that their systems were great when really they weren't. And people you've talked to have suggested that that, I mean, this is a fairly straightforward complaint that there may be more on the way, right? Yeah. Usually in investor litigation, you get a few different suits filed by different people and they get consolidated. uh, And then a derivative suit would also be separate. So that's something Equifax can look out for. There sounds like they're going to have a lot of suits on their hands. Yeah. Thanks for bringing all this and explaining it, Carmen. Great. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Carmen. Thanks. We like to end our show with something offbeat, and today we're going to talk about a pair of comedians who went by the fake names Chop and Steal onto a Wisconsin morning show, and now they've been sued about it. Wait, so you and Bill have been busy, huh? Oh, (laughs) 
Uh, Are you chop or steal? Well, he's, I mean, there was litigation that followed this, so that's why he's not here. He's actually uh, (laughs) representing us in court. Uh, So what what was this? This was like some stunt that these guys pulled? Yeah, so they're the kind of guys that do this found footage thing, and that means they look at a lot of old workout DVDs, Mm -hmm. or VHS, presumably. So they dressed up like you would imagine people to be 80s workout people. They're like like, fitness gurus. Yeah, fitness gurus. The shirts literally said chop on one and steal on the other. They had on like... The zebra stripe workout like okay. pants, Zuba's that pants. thing, and they take yeah, this to Wisconsin. Right. So they go to this morning show, Hello Wisconsin, and <laughs> nice. they go on the show. They do a lengthy fake workout, a routine. very obviously fake yes. workout routine. Like how it fake are just, we talking? So they used things from like their yard, like sticks as workout gear. They used like gallons of juice. Nice. There was one point where Chop literally said. We like to tell people you've got to let life bounce off of you, and then still starts throwing sticks at his back. Like, I mean, it's pretty broad. They're throwing okay. things at right. each other so and calling clear, it exercise. Pretty clearly fake. Yeah, you, you would imagine. <laughs> but some fake news. Fake. I mean, the, the station didn't see it that way, guys. The station definitely sort of put this in the context of fake news, and they said that this wasn't just a stunt. This was fraud, essentially. <laughs> um, they. Said the duo lied their way onto the local show and many other local TV shows uh, with, quote, a specific goal of creating fake news to promote their <laughs> website and stage shows. The f- I mean, we're going to include the, the the clip in the show notes. And I mean, there's really no justice we can do it. But like the thing that's really funny is like, these, as I say, these guys are doing like this obviously fake workout routine. Yeah. And the hosts are just so earnest and credulous about so the whole earnest. thing. Yeah, there's like, guys like lifting milk jugs, right? Well, like, like one, my favorite part, like maybe the guys can get the audio on this, but like there's one where like he's literally, one of the guys is literally sliding like like novelty wicker baskets under the other guy's foot. And he's stomping on and them. And he's stomping on them and they're counting them out one after the other. And right when he starts stomping on them, you can hear one of the hosts off to the side and she goes, nice. <laughs> <laughs> like she's really impressed. I don't know if they're humoring them. I really do wonder like if they... We're wise and didn't want to like. We're trying to salvage a segment. Yeah. Well, it's, it's been a, little, a while since I watched morning, like local <laughs> morning TV. It's a little TV. confusing because like the the <laughs> lawsuit is styled as that they misappropriated the resources of the TV station. No, I mean, and that Amber. this was a misleading appearance. It, they <laughs> had allegations of fraud. They also have a side allegation about violating a copyright because the comedy duo posted a clip of the show. Okay, and part well, of their stuff. So there's a lot going on here, but basically, they're saying no. We had no idea you were comedy guys. And that's a little, first, maybe a little tough to believe because to me it seems kind of <laughs> obvious yeah. here. But also they do reference on the morning show, the hosts say things like, oh, they'll be performing at so-and-so. Yeah. So they know they were doing some kind of performance. But I think the station's arguing, oh, no, we thought this was like promoting their workout stuff. If if nothing else, this is a teachable moment for us because we are in the in the business of booking guests for interesting yeah. segments and i think we should really be careful about like do your due diligence on those judges yeah well, inviting you know you know, get people who have like bogus law degrees it's and, true we we're gonna we, get like the the bird law guy from uh, <laughs> oh, it's always sunny in philadelphia we do get a lot of pitches for people to potentially be on the show and yeah here's the lesson we can learn uh they were booked on this morning show after sending um what they clearly describe as a joke press release we get some of those too. Yeah. <laughs> or what at least <laughs> we'd like them. I would like to think we recognize them. So part of their argument to the court to try to get this case tossed uh, out is that, and I'm going to quote this sentence here because it's just so funny. The many outlandishly and verifiably incorrect factual assertions made in the press release, as well as its humorous tone, conveyed to most persons that it should not be taken at face value. 
So yeah, that's their fancy way of saying it was all a joke and they should have known it was a joke. You know, we'll let the legal process play out, but I think it's time for Congress to get off its butt and pass the credulous morning show hosts act of 2017. <laughs> that's 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 what this is. That's what this calls for. Yeah, don't believe press releases that <laughs> appear to have come from the onion. Don't believe press releases. But, yeah. <laughs> so say the media professionals. <laughs> all, right, all right, so thanks, Amber. that'll wrap us up today. Um, thanks for being with me, Alex. Thank you. And thanks a lot for filling in today, JD. Had a great time. We'd like to thank several people who worked on today's show, including our producers Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd like to thank our guest Carmen Germain for coming on the show today. Contributing reporters this week include Linda Chim, Zach Zagger, and Nicole Norea. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. And if you like what you've heard, please leave us a review on iTunes. And check out any of the stories that you've heard today on our website at law360.com backslash podcast. Thanks and join us again next week. You can see that while he's flexing there, that if you do this at home, you, it's working all your, it's your delts, your tries, your plaps, it's all the major chest muscle groups.